Our Old Testament reading this evening is Deuteronomy chapter 10, verses 12 through 13. Deuteronomy chapter 10, verses 12 through 13. Let's hear God's word with full attention. And now, Israel, what does the Lord your God require of you but to fear the Lord your God, to walk in all his ways, and to love him, to serve the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul, and to keep the commandments of the Lord and his statutes, which I command you today for your good. In our New Testament text, we have two of them. We're going to read from Luke 24 here. Excuse me. Luke 24, verses 13 through 27. Jesus here is walking on the road to Emmaus. This is just after his resurrection. He meets two of his disciples. And they don't recognize him yet, but he opens the word of God to them. He opens the Old Testament scriptures to them and shows them how it was all pointing to him, how it was all about him. So Luke 24, verses 13 through 27. Now behold, two of them were traveling that same day to a village called Emmaus, which was seven miles from Jerusalem. And they talked uh, together of all these things which had happened. So it was while they conversed and reasoned that Jesus himself drew near and went with them. But their eyes were restrained so that they did not know him. And he said to them, what kind of conversation is this that you have with one another as you walk and are sad? Then the one whose name was Cleopas answered and said to him, Are you the only stranger in Jerusalem, and have you not known the things which happened there in these days? And he said to them, What things? So they said to him, The things concerning Jesus of Nazareth, who was a prophet, mighty in deed and word, before God and all the people, and how the chief priests and our rulers delivered him to be condemned to death and crucified him. But we were hoping that it was he who was going to redeem Israel. Indeed, besides all this, today is the third day since these things happened. Yes, and certain women of our company who arrived at the tomb early astonished us. When they did not find his body, they came saying that they had also seen a vision of angels who said he was alive. And certain of those who were with us went to the tomb and found it just as the woman had said. But him they did not see. Then he said to them, O foolish ones, and slow of heart to believe in all that the prophets have spoken. Ought not the Christ to have suffered these things and to enter into his glory? And beginning at Moses and all the prophets, he expounded to them in all the scriptures the things concerning himself. So those two readings, Deuteronomy there and now there in Luke, as background to what's our sermon text, Romans 16 25 through 27. Romans 16, 25 through 27. Now to him who is able to establish you according to my gospel and the preaching of Jesus Christ, according to the revelation of the mystery kept secret since the world began, but now made manifest and by the prophetic scriptures made known to all nations, according to the commandment of the everlasting God, for obedience to the faith, to God, alone wise, be glory through Jesus Christ forever. Amen. Let's pray together. 
Lord, we pray that you would indeed now, even as we've already sung in a prayer together, turn away our eyes from vanity. Turn our eyes away from the worthless things of the world, the empty things, the things that do not satisfy, uh, the things that leave our uh, leave us craving more. Uh, turn our hearts away from idols. Instead, Father, incline our hearts by your sovereign grace. Incline our hearts once again to our Lord Jesus and the things of heaven. And we pray you'd write this word in our hearts, that we would be those who hear it and do it. As we pray for Jesus' sake. Amen. We're continuing on in this series in the Shorter Catechism, and we're on question three, Westminster Shorter Catechism, question and answer three. Uh, what do the Scriptures principally teach? The Scriptures principally teach what man is to believe concerning God and the duty God requires of man. In other words, what's the Bible all about? That's, that's the gist of the question that the Westminster divines are asking. And it's a good question, isn't it? What is the Bible all about? It's a big book. 66 books, actually, in one. Written over several thousand years by dozens of different human authors. Collected into this one volume. Some people look at that and they laugh that you'd come up with one thing the Bible is all about. They, they think it's a, you know, just a collection of random writings that kind of gets, uh, kind of evolves over time. There's no real unity there. But of course, as we saw last time, question and answer two of the Catechism says, well, this is the very Word of God. This is the Word that God Himself wrote. Not a collection of random writings from human authors, but, but a collection of writings that God inspired that, that he raised up these human authors by his providence. He superintended uh, uh, their, their words so that it was the very word of God that's contained here in the Scriptures, Old and New Testament, Testaments. So it's a book that's not like any other, is it? This is the word of God. So we can ask the question, because there's one singular author behind it, the Holy Spirit, what does he intend for this book to be about? What is the Bible all about? It must have a purpose. It must accomplish that purpose effectively. It must be about something. It's designed specifically to teach us something. What does it teach us? How would you answer that? How would you answer that question? What is the Bible about? Well, the Westminster Divines answer it very wisely, very carefully, and very broadly, and I'd say very biblically, as, as we'll see as we go on. They say this, The Scriptures principally teach what man is to believe concerning God and what duty God requires of man. It's a simple statement. It's a nice broad statement. It's a catch-all. They don't try to sum up the big theme of Scripture in one sentence. Instead, they, they give us just a framework to understand what Scripture is about. It gives us a paradigm to think through what the Bible is doing, what it's about. And they say it's about what we believe and how we behave. It's about faith and it's about practice. It's about doctrine and it's about life. And that's actually the, the, the outline of the rest of the Shorter Catechism. As the divines are uh, thinking through this, they're doing it logically, and, and, and they've laid the, the foundation now of our, of our chief end, and now of Scripture, and they're going to go and they're going to work through their catechism based under these headings, what we are to believe about God, and then uh, the second part of the catechism about how we are to respond, what duty God requires of us. A few important things to notice about the answer the Westminster divines give us here. 
before we dive into our text in particular. First thing, notice how radically God-centered their answer is to the question. Right? The Bible, first and foremost, is about whom? It's about God. It's not about man. It's not about religious experience. It's not about uh, a man's experience. So much of liberal theology, modernist theology over the past two centuries has turned the Bible into a re- an anthropology, the study of man and his religious experience. He tries to make sense of his world. It's turned the Bible, it's turned theology into sociology, the study of man and his societies. All too often, brothers and sisters, I think this infects how we think about the Bible. Not that we would agree, perhaps, with the conclusions of some of these critical scholars, but we, would, we, we, we can treat the Bible as though it's a book first about us and our experience. Now, does it have much to say about us and our experience? Of course. But first and foremost, it's a book about God. He is the, the main actor, the hero, the, 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 the protagonist of the story. That's the first thing we see here, right? The divines say the Bible teaches us what to believe about God and what duty God requires of us. The second thing we see here in their answer is that it, uh, it shows us that faith comes before practice. Uh, the divines could have flipped the answer, couldn't they? They could have said this, the scriptures principally teach what duty God requires of man and what man is to believe concerning God. They could have put it that way, but they didn't. They first put what we're to believe, then they put what we are to do. Just like God does in Exodus chapter 20, as he's giving his people the Ten Commandments, right? The duty God's requiring of them. First he gives them, I am the Lord your God who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of slavery. He he says, I am God and I've redeemed you. This is what you need to believe, Israel. Now here's your duty. Or this is what Paul does in Ephesians. He does what he does in in Romans. In so many of his letters. He starts with what you believe about God. And then he moves to how you need to respond to God in faith and obedience. We live in in an action-focused, a pragmatic, practical kind of age. We like to know what we need to do. We like to go do it. Uh, But the Bible starts with first what we are to believe than what we are to do. But we also see, don't we? So we see that. But the third thing we should see in this answer they give here is that faith doesn't just stay inactive. Right? They say the Bible teaches us what we're to believe about God, but that's not the end of the answer. It goes on and says if it's about our duty as well. The divines aren't giving us doctrine without application. They're not saying Christianity is just a matter of what you believe, not a matter of how you live. It's interesting. Um, they do put what we are to believe concerning God first in the Catechism. But that only takes up questions and answers 1 through 38. Question and answer 39 through 107, the greater bulk of the Catechism, is how we're to respond in faith and obedience to what God has done as they unpack the Lord's Prayer and, and, and the essence of saving faith and, and as they unpack the Ten Commandments for us. So yes, there's a premium on theology and ethics together here. They're not interested in a useless religion. Because the Bible, right? The Bible does this. The Bible holds these things constantly together. Our our behavior and our belief stand and fall together. So that's that's the, the answer the divines give to what the Bible is all about. It's about who God is 
what he wants from us. But we shouldn't just take their word for it. So let's look at the scripture now, loved ones. Um, We read a few texts a moment ago. We could unpack uh, any one of them. We we read from Deuteronomy. Uh, We read there about how God gives his people requirements, the duty he expects from them to obey him, to love him. We also read Luke 24, where Jesus so clearly speaks about how the Old Testament is about him. That's what scripture is about, and that's what we need to believe about God. Um, but, but we're going to turn our attention mainly on Romans 16, 25 to 27, because in this text, uh, Paul brings both of these things together, both what we're to believe and how we are to respond. So let's look there. Romans 16, 25 to 27. I invite you to have your Bible open as we, as we work through this here. Um, verses 25 to 27 are one long sentence. They're the final closing word that Paul has in this glorious letter to the Romans. You'll notice that they're a doxology. Uh, it, it's a, the end of the letter ends with Paul breaking out in praise to God. It's a doxology. All the theology of Roman leads to the praise of God. And it's, it's rich with, with uh, theology for us. The structure of these verses, uh, just to kind of orient ourselves before we dive in, the structure of these verses is interesting. It's a bit like a sandwich. Um, so you have the, the bread, and then you have the middle pieces. The, 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 it starts with Paul saying, now to him. We're getting ready to launch into praise to God. That's the first slice of bread, if you will. Now to him. He's, he's getting ready to praise God. But then he breaks off that thought. And he's not going to come around to finishing that thought until the end of verse 27. Now to him... To God be glory through Jesus Christ forever. That's the, that's the end of the sandwich, if you will, the last slice. And, and then in the middle, we have two more parts that are parallel. As Paul uh, calls, uh, uh, he, he speaks of application. In verse 25, he says, God, to him who is able to establish you, to strengthen you. That's the language of application and practice, right? God is strengthening you for something. And then he comes back to that again. Uh, at the end of verse 27, he talks about for obedience to the faith, the language of duty and response to God. Right? So, so we have the bread, and we have the two, I don't know, cheese, maybe, two slices of cheese, and, the, and then in the middle, we've got the meat. And the meat is uh, what the Bible is all about, the doctrine, the teaching there about what Scripture teaches. So three parts. We're going we're gonna to start in the middle and work our way out. First, what the Bible is all about. Second, what the Bible does for us. Third, where the Bible leads us. What the Bible is all about, what the Bible does for us, and where the Bible leads us. So first, what the Bible is all about. Paul describes the Word of God in these center verses here in the middle of Romans 16, 25 to 27. He describes it in a couple parallel terms. He describes it as my gospel and the preaching of Jesus Christ. That's the first thing he says. It's my gospel and the preaching of Jesus Christ. What does he mean by gospel? Of course, we probably know that word. It means good news. This is the good news of what God has done for us in his Son. Now, this is very similar to the way Paul starts the letter to the Romans. Way back in chapter 1, verse 15, he, excuse me, 1, verse 1, he says, Paul, a servant of Christ Jesus, called to be an apostle, set apart for the gospel of God. And again, Romans 1, 15, I am eager to preach the gospel 
to you also who are in Rome. Romans 1.16. The gospel is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes. So from beginning to end of the book of Romans, and we could look at all kinds of texts in the middle of the book that talk about this too, but the bookends of the whole thing are the gospel. This is Paul's message. Everything he's been saying about how God has revealed his righteousness in Christ about how God has justified sinful man, about how God is, is sanctifying sinful man, how God has adopted sinful man in Christ, how God has elected by his sovereign grace a people for himself. All these things, Paul is saying, this is, this is the gospel. But it's not just an abstract set of teaching for Paul. There's not just this list of doctrines that we can go down and enumerate. Paul isn't a preacher here just because... It's a decent job. It's a decent way for him to make a living. No. What does he say? We're in verse verse 25. He calls it my gospel. This is personal to Paul. He says, it's my gospel. No, he's not the one who authored it. He's not the one who accomplished it. But this is the gospel that is his. It's personal to him in a very real way. This is is the message that has changed his life. Right? It grabbed hold of him on the Damascus Road. He's on his way to persecute Christians and the gospel is announced to him and he is changed forever. And he becomes a a missionary of this gospel. This message drives him. This is his life. Gerhardus Voss, a great theologian from the previous century, has a sermon on 2 Corinthians 3.18 where Paul is saying something somewhat similar. And Voss says this about Paul there. He says, It's not chiefly the question whether we are strong in the cause, but whether the cause is strong in and through us. It's not chiefly that we are strong in the cause, but whether the cause is strong in and through us. Voss is saying the gospel lived in Paul. It was strong in Paul. It thrived in and through him. That's why he calls it my gospel. This gospel, though, it isn't just a set of doctrines. And it's not just a set of doctrines that's personal to Paul. It's not just a message. It's actually a person. Paul says this. He says, according to my gospel and the preaching of Jesus Christ. He doesn't mean the preaching that Jesus did, though elsewhere in Romans will refer to that. But, but here he talks about the preaching of Jesus Christ, meaning the message that he proclaims, the preaching that he does, is about a person. It's about a man. Everything Paul preaches can be summarized as Christ. This is what he says in 1 Corinthians 1.23. We preach Christ crucified. Or Colossians 1.28. Christ we proclaim. This is Paul's gospel. It's Christ, the man, the Lord Jesus Sinclair Ferguson once, I think it was on a lecture at Westminster, said to the students, to us there, he said, be personalists in your preaching. Be personalists in your preaching. What what does he mean? He, He meant, don't just preach about Christ. Preach Christ. Don't just talk to people about who Christ is and what he's done. Proclaim Christ to people. Voss, again, says something very similar. He's talking about the work of missions here, but it applies. He says this, Our task may be summed up in the simple formula to bring Christ to men and men to Christ. 
It sounds simple, but is in reality a most difficult and most delicate task. No painter portraying face upon canvas ever used more exquisite art than is his who in preaching the gospel succeeds in so delineating the face of Christ as to make him look out with his immortal Savior eyes straight and deep into the hearts of sinners. Let your one concern be to bring the two together. Paul agrees. This is his concern, to preach Christ so that people see Christ, trust in Christ, as Paul proclaims the gospel. So this is how Paul starts. But then he goes on and he adds a parallel phrase here to what he's talking about to explain more fully what he means. Look with me at the next clause in the verse. He says, according to the revelation of the mystery kept secret since the world began, but now made manifest and by the prophetic scriptures made known to all nations. It's a lot there. Let's see what he means. He, he, he mentions first the mystery, the revelation of the mystery. What's a mystery? Well, it's, it's something you don't fully understand. It's something where there's some part of it hidden. Paul is saying there's this mystery that God had kept hidden from the beginning of the world, and now in Christ, the curtain's been pulled back, and we see what the mystery is. When we see this word mystery in the New Testament, it, that's primarily what it means. A mystery that's been made clear. This is the mystery of the gospel, isn't it? Over in Romans eleven twenty-five, Paul talks about this mystery. He says it's the mystery of the God bringing together Jew and Gentile together in one people of God in, in, in the New Testament church. Um, but he also talks about it more inclusively here, I think. I think he's bringing into view everything God has revealed in Christ. The mystery of the incarnation, that God became man. The mystery uh, that Jesus would die for sinners. The glorious mystery of the resurrection. The mystery of God's justifying sinners. The mystery of his grace. All this is what Paul is, is talking about. He's saying all this was hidden from the foundation of the world. Now it's been made Clear. It's been made unmistakably obvious in Christ. Is Paul saying then that um, until Jesus came, people had no clue about God's saving plan? Is this all a surprise? Um, no, that's not what he's saying. In fact, he's saying the opposite. If you look at the text, he says, The mystery now made manifest and by the prophetic scriptures made known to all nations. What is he saying there? He's saying this mystery, yes, it's been hidden from the foundation of the world, but it's also been in plain sight since the foundation of the world, really. Since the, since the scriptures were written, since the Old Testament was there, right? We see it in Genesis 3.15, as early as that, this mystery hidden in plain sight, if you will, for everyone to see. Everything Paul preaches, he goes to a synagogue, he opens up a text. What's he preaching? He's preaching the Old Testament, Psalms or Isaiah or Deuteronomy. He's opening up the scriptures of the Old Testament and saying, here's Christ in this. We see this uh, right so clearly in those words we already read of uh, Christ on the road to Emmaus with his disciples there. He says to them, Was it not necessary that the Christ should suffer these things and enter into his glory? And beginning with Moses and all the prophets, he interpreted to them and all the scriptures the things concerning himself. 
Jesus is saying here, just like Paul is saying in our text, the whole Old Testament is about Christ. Every book of the Old Testament is pointing forward to Him. The mystery that was, that was hidden is there, hidden in the Old Testament. B.B. Warfield, uh, professor at Old Princeton Seminary, uh, compares the Old Testament to a richly furnished room. Everything is there. It's richly furnished, but the lights are dim. It's hard to see. And then in the New Testament, it's not a new room, but the lights come on in the same room. So, you, so, so in the Old Testament, right, you can make out the prophecies, and you can tell that a Messiah is going to come, and that God's going to save His people. You can tell the Messiah is going to suffer before He's glorified. But then it's not until the New Testament that Christ comes and the lights come on brilliantly, and you see all the glories of this richly furnished room. It doesn't add anything. It just reveals what was already there. St. Augustine said something similar. He said, the new is in the old concealed. The old is in the new revealed. So Paul is saying the revelation of this mystery, it was in plain sight in the Old Testament. Now it's been clearly seen brilliantly in Christ. This is the gospel. All this happened by God's command according to his decree. Okay. What's the significance of all this for our concern this evening, right? We're talking about what the Bible's all about. What do we, what do we see here? Paul is, Paul is telling us, everything I preach, the Bible that I preach, the Old Testament I preach, it's all about the Lord Jesus Christ and the gospel of Christ. Every word of it is about him, ultimately. Paul's preaching is based on the scriptures of the Old Testament. And what do those scriptures principally teach Paul? They preach Christ. They tell us what to believe concerning God, in particular, as God reveals himself to us in our Savior. So that's the first half of our answer to the question, what's the Bible all about? It's about God and what we're to believe about him as he especially reveals himself to us in his Son, our Lord Jesus. What about the rest? So that's what the Scriptures teach us about how we're, what we're to believe about God. What about how we respond? How do we respond to this? Well, they, they tell us who Christ is, and they tell us how we need to respond to Him. So let's look now at that, that aspect of our text here. What does the Bible do for us? That's our second heading, what the Bible does for us. Well, first we see the Bible teaches um, how, how uh, the duty that God requires of us. We also see, as we look at the passage here in particular in Romans, that the scriptures strengthen us, make us able to believe and, and, and respond in obedience to the Lord. Look with me here. We're in verse 25 and then in verse 26. In verse 25, Paul says, It's by the word of God about his Son that we are established. And then in verse 26, we're told that God has brought about the revelation of the mystery of Christ for what? For obedience to the faith. So those are two parallel things. God is strengthening us by the word of God about Christ, and God is bringing out the obedience of faith through the word of God about Christ. So first, we're strengthened. We're made able to stand. We're established. That's what that word means. Right? We're rooted firmly. Right? We're not going to be tossed about. We're not going to be, uh, there's nothing that will shake the foundation that we're rooted in. 
Paul says, he, he flushes this out further as he says that um, this is for the obedience to the faith, or uh, a, a better translation might be, the obedience of faith. What's he, what's he mean here? What does Paul mean as he says this is the obedience of faith that the Scriptures are causing in us? He, he means, I think, that this obedience, first of all, is an obedience of trusting in God and then in living out that trust in obedience to Him. The obedience begins in faith. It's characterized by faith. It flows from faith, leading to greater obedience. So let's, let's take a step back, loved ones, and see the whole picture here. The Word of God all about the Son of God, is able to establish us in faith and keep us living by faith in obedience to God. Let's bring this back around to the Catechism. The Catechism says that the second thing the Bible mainly teaches, the second thing it's about, is what God requires of us. That's a, that's a nice broad way of putting it. It's, it's broad enough to, to catch everything. The answer is true of everyone, isn't it? That all the way back to Adam and Eve. God revealed himself to them, gave them a command, and they were to obey him. That's the covenant of works. Don't eat of the tree. God commanded them. But the rest of the Bible, too, is about this, isn't it? As God gives the covenant of grace, he still requires things of his people. He requires faith in him, repentance from sin, trust in him, and, and and then living out that faith in obedience. Loved ones, Uh, what we see here is that God tells us so clearly what he requires of us. He tells us what what he wants from us. Isn't that a glorious thing? That we're not left in doubt about what God wants us to do, about what pleases him. So many other religions leave you in doubt about what God or the gods want from you, what what your duty in life is. But not, not the Bible. It spells it out clearly. Here is what God wants from you. It's a wonderful thing. But the Scriptures don't just teach us what we're to do and then say, good luck. You're on your own now that you know. Um, What does Paul say here? This is the word that establishes you. This word causes you to be established. This word brings about your obedience and your faith. So the Word does two things, right? It teaches what your duty is, and it gives you the grace to do it, too. John Bunyan, author of Pilgrim's Progress, is often attributed with a saying that puts it so simply and memorably. He says, Run, John, run, the law commands, but gives us neither feet nor hands. Far better news the gospel brings. It bids us fly and gives us wings. Right? Run, John, run, the law commands, but gives us neither feet nor hands. Right? If the scriptures only revealed to us our duty without also equipping us to do it, that's where we'd be. Commanded to do something and unable to do it. But the word of God as it comes to us and gives us life by the spirit of God working it in our hearts, bids us fly and gives us wings. That's what the gospel does. All 66 books of it here in the Old and New Testament. The Spirit takes it and He works it into your heart. So yes, you see what you're called to do, what your duty is, how to trust Him, how to follow Him, and you're enabled by His grace more and and more to do it. Loved ones, do you want to be strengthened in your trust and in your obedience? Go to the Word of God. 
by this word will grow in understanding what he wants from us, will grow in our knowledge of him, and will grow in our ability to carry out his will in union with Christ. All right. Let's look now. We've seen, uh, we've seen there what the Bible does for us, how it teaches us and strengthens us. Let's look now, finally, where the Bible leads us, our final heading. Where the Bible leads us. We're outside the scope of the catechism now, um, at least of question and answer three. We're no longer talking here about what the scriptures principally teach so much, though, though we'll see it, it, it does come back around to that. But we're not, out, we're not far outside the context of question and answer three, because we're really in the context of question and answer one. What's our chief end? Glorify God and enjoy him forever. And that's where Romans 16, 25 to 27 lands, isn't it? It's where it starts and ends. It begins with, to him, right, kicking off this doxology. It interrupts that for a little while to discuss some things. Then it closes, it ends, to God alone, wise, be glory through Jesus Christ forever. Everything else Paul has said, everything he packed in between those things, was just a side comment, supporting what he's going to say, but really not the main thing yet. Right? This is the main thing, to God be the glory. This is why God's revealed himself then in the scriptures. This is why Jesus came and showed us who God is and, and, and accomplished our salvation for us. This is why that mystery was revealed to us, so that we could glory in God. Paul brings together two reasons for us to glorify God here in the text. First is his power. Right, The beginning of this doxology, verse 25 says, to him who is able to establish you, the power of God, the Greek word is dunamis, power, the power of God. The second thing that he glories in here is the wisdom of God at the end of the doxology in verse 27. To God alone wise. Why those two? Well, it's the power of God that has accomplished salvation and it's the wisdom of God that planned out this salvation. It's the power of God that brought the gospel to pass and it's the wisdom of God that decreed that gospel from before the foundation of the world. So Paul is saying, praise be to God who, who decreed and who carried out this glorious gospel for our salvation. So loved ones, this finally, ultimately, at the end, is what the Bible is all about, isn't it? Yes, it's about what we're to believe about God and how to, what, what duty God requires of us. But finally, it's all about the glory of God. That's the main theme of the Scriptures. The glory of God. It's the goal of everything we believe. It's the goal of everything that we're called to do in the Christian life. To bring glory to Him. This is, why, uh, this is what the Scriptures are competent to equip us for. To carry out this chief end of glorifying God and enjoying Him forever. Let's pray together. Lord, we do give thanks to You for the clarity and the sufficiency of your word, uh, we're so thankful that you have revealed yourself to us, spoken to us in a way we can understand, that you've opened our hearts to receive it and given us hearts to love it. We pray you do that more and more. Be at work in us by your word. Teach us what to believe about you. We pray that you would continually retrain our minds to think rightly about who you are and retrain our hearts and our wills to love 
who you are and to love what you give us for our duty and to carry it out faithfully and well and equip us, strengthen us, establish us by your word, the word about Christ our Savior, in whose name we pray. Amen.